what makes for a good church? Just throw that question out there. It's kind of a controversial question. It's one of those that um, everyone has an opinion. You know what you like to eat, right? I know that uh, I have opinions about that. Like I like pie and, uh, yes, thank you, steak and um, pizza and candy. So uh, those are the four major group, four, uh, food groups as far as I'm concerned right there. That's good eating, isn't it? Like, well, I think there's some science that might you know, contradict that, Jay, but that's what I like. And I think when it comes to the church, if you ask the question to a group of evangelical Christians or any kind of Christians, and you say, hey, what, what makes for a good church? They'll say, oh, yeah, I, I, I can tell you. And, and a lot of times, it's the steak and the candy and the pie stuff they're talking about. So, oh, I, you know, I want uh, I, I, I a church that's just got, oh, really booming worship. I want to go in there and feel the floor rocking or whatever it might be. Or, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, biblically speaking, that what we like is is necessarily the four major food groups when you're talking about, biblically, what is a good church. Now, this sermon may sound a little bit familiar because as we've worked our way through the book of Acts, if you've been here with us from the very beginning when we started the book of Acts, you'll recall that there were several little vignettes where you had a picture of the church, and I talked about the fact that you had kind of a model of what a good church looks like. So this is not really the, I, I, if I went back and looked, which I didn't bother to do but for titles, I wouldn't be surprised if I've used this title before, because, Good Church, like what is a good church? And the book of Acts is very much uh, a, a, just a wealth of information about what a good, healthy, biblical church looks like. But my point to you today is we need to know, we need to know what makes for a good biblical church. You with me? That's pretty simple. You get the idea of it. Let's, let's talk about why it is we need to, to know this. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background here from the passage, so we're just going to kind of work through the passage really quickly here. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, probably Luke along with them. We presume Luke is there writing it, you know, as he goes along chronicling this. They leave Thessalonica. Why did they leave Thessalonica? Do you remember that? There was a big crowd that had been agitated among the Jews there, and they'd gone to Jason's house, drug the poor guy and some of the other brothers out before the magistrates, and they had to put up a bond or a bail where they had money on the line. Like, boy, if, the, if this city explodes, we're out of here. We're going to lose all our money. And so Paul leaves. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Um, Paul is not done with the Thessalonians, as we know. I don't know how many uh, other times that uh, he may have ended up in Thessalonica, but, uh, but he wrote two letters to him, so we know he's not actually done with them. But he dutifully leaves. He travels about 45 miles west-southwest. I know this because a smart book told me that. I know nothing about the geography, really, of this area. I would love to, but uh, never been there. But he, he gets west by southwest, 45 miles, and he comes to Berea. He's traveling along the Via Ignatia. You've probably heard of that in some history class at some point. It's one of those major thoroughfares. Um, and yet, the, the town of Berea is described as a little out of the way. So it's on a major thoroughfare. It's a little out of the way. It was along a sloped kind of a gently sloping mountain, so don't think Rockies, 
Just think of some other place where you've been, maybe even in a... In fact, there was a river there, so it's kind of think of, a, of kind of that sloping landscape up from a river and then a terraced city. That's Berea. Again, it's a little off the map. That may mean, what I think of that sort of is like when you go on a trip. How many of you have gone on a trip and you've been flying across the country on some interstate? Ever been there, done that? And uh, you think, man, I need to get some gas. I should take the next, next exit for gas. And you go, oh, hey, it says gas at this next exit. How, how many times has this happened to you? you? You pull off, and then there's a sign for the town where the gas is, and it's like five or ten miles. It's like, no, no, no. I'm getting back on the highway, and I'm going to go to the one that has it right there at the, at the anyway. So that's, I, maybe that's a little bit like what Berea was like. It was just a little off the Via Ignatia. Uh, Paul's ministry in Berea doesn't take up a lot of space. You may have noticed this. This is a very short passage uh, to be preaching on. But uh, it, it, uh, in that short, little, compressed way, it is a very powerful testimony here um, to what the church ought to be. Never again throughout the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament will we ever read of Berea. Isn't that strange? It gets kind of subsumed within the Macedonian churches. So from time to time, Paul will say things like, and all the, and all the churches of Macedonia. Can you imagine? Like it, it'd be like saying, and all the, the churches of flyover country. You're in there, great, Ben. <laughs> oh, great, yeah. So that's, that's about all the, the shrift it really gets. But in this passage, he's really setting forth in just a brief summary, something of what it looks like to be a really good church. It says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. How many times do you read of anyone being referred to as noble in the scripture? So that makes you pay attention, doesn't it? They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now that sounds a little bit like a slam against, against the Thessalonians, doesn't it? It's like he doesn't just say they were noble. He says they were more noble than the Thessalonians. Like, probably because they just left the Thessalonians. It's kind of weird in a way. I mean, Luke would have been there, so maybe he, maybe he had a jaundice. Maybe he had some you know, bad guacamole in Thessalonica. I don't know. Uh, but Paul loved the Thessalonians, didn't he? He genuinely loved them, and it comes through in his letters. And we don't have any corresponding letter to the Bereans. What happened to that? Why don't we have a letter to the Bereans? Were they just so noble that they didn't need any, any letters written to them? But what differentiated them from the Thessalonians is not that they were intrinsically good people, like they were more righteous on their own or anything of the kind. It's that they were more curious and more open-minded when it came to looking at the gospel, eager to hear the gospel, excited to examine and open the scripture, take the Old Testament, what to them was, that was their Bible, uh, that was their Torah, Torah and, they, and they opened that, and, and they were looking at it and comparing what Paul was saying to the scriptures themselves. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The character of the Bereans who formed that first congregation there is just a dynamic, truth-seeking, scripture-loving group of people. How awesome is that? This is why you'll often see how many have ever driven past a church and you look, oh, I wonder what kind of church that is. And the word Berea or Berean is in the title. How many have seen that? Yeah? Okay. A lot of people do. It's not always a scam when people throw that name in there, but it is kind of a, it's like, oh yeah, we're really that church. We're noble, you know, we're really, we're really into the scriptures here. And that may or may not be true just because it's in the name doesn't, doesn't make it so. But that's what they're going for. That's what the desire is. 
Well, anytime something really good happens, what do you expect to happen in response? Anytime the gospel is going forward and the kingdom of, of Christ is making ground, there's always pushback, isn't there? And that's what we see immediately. But when the Jews from Thessalon- Thessalonica learn uh, that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, that's 45, minutes away, uh, 45 miles away, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. How many feel like Paul gets served a big helping of, of uh, poetic justice way too often? You see what I'm saying? Because isn't this Paul? Paul was so zealous for the law. And he was so zealous, misguided, and, but zealous against the church that he didn't just persecute them where he was. No, he had to just keep following them wherever they went from city to city to city. And, and he, he is getting that back in spades. So after establishing a church in Berea, Paul has to move on. It says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Why do you think he left Silas and Timothy there? I think it's pretty easy to understand within the totality of the context of the book of Acts, within the context of the totality of Paul's ministry. There's really only one explanation, because Paul did not normally travel alone. He, he liked to have his guys with him, his disciples. I believe he, he's being run off. He's the lightning rod for controversy. So he knows if he leaves the Thessalonians that have come to persecute the church, they'll move out of the way. Well, no show here left. No Paul. We'll just move on. That left Silas and Timothy to strengthen and encourage and teach the fledgling church at Berea. Finally, we read, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, who are the those that, that are there that conducted Paul and brought him as far as Athens? Think about this for a minute. If you understand what the, the context of it and you put it together, it's pretty clear who the those are. Now, I don't know that I know the names of any of these people. There is one I said Berea is never mentioned again. There is the word Berean one time in Acts, and it's in the context of a guy's name. His name's Sopater the Berean. Sopater the Berean. So I'm thinking Sopater could have been one of the those, but at any rate, it's people from Berea. It's almost like a, a, a swap. Silas and Timothy have stayed there. Berean men, probably men, ladies, and no, no offense, but in the time you would expect it to be men. Some of these men from Berea accompanied Paul and got him to Athens. And then when they got to Athens, they waited with Paul until Paul wanted to send for Silas and Timothy. And then, then they went back and they called Silas and Timothy to join Paul. Got it? That's, so that's the passage. You under, more or less understand the lay of the land so far? You're like, we haven't hit a single point. Hurry up, Jay. I'm moving. Trust me, I'm moving. But what we have here is we look at this passage. Again, it's very brief. Doesn't go into a ton of detail, but I believe there is sort of a kernel of real, real important elements of what it means to be a good church. And we're going to look at two of those right now, two elements that we need for a good church. How many even care? How many want a good church? Okay, good. How many have children elsewhere and you want them to be in a good church where they are? Yeah? All right, so we have a concern about this. We need, we need to know what a good church looks like. First of all, a good church needs a certain kind of preacher. A good church needs a certain kind of preacher. We're talking about Paul in this case. 
And, for, and we see there that he needs to be faithful. He needs to be faithful. Paul never describes himself anywhere in the New Testament that I know of as a good orator. Paul was a brilliant man. He was highly educated. He was trained under one of the absolute leading rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But nowhere does he ever describe himself as a good speaker. Isn't that weird? Isn't that the first thing we look for? Like if somebody says, oh, I want to be a pastor. You're like, are you a good speaker? Yeah. Well, not that great. Well, then you're out of it. You can't, you can't do it. But Paul always diminishes himself when he comes to, you know, like in 1 Corinthians, he says again and again, like in one place he says, you know, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but he, he, he sent me to preach the gospel, but not with eloquent words of wisdom. It's like, you know, I, 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 my job is to preach, but I, I'm not preaching particularly well, <laughs> not from a human vantage point. It doesn't always sound like a, a perfect three-point sermon, and I don't always have the best illustrations or whatever, but I'm preaching the gospel in power because Christ is, Christ is in that. He says to them in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he says, For they say, and he's talking about his detractors, those that don't like him. He says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. What Paul was was a steward of the gospel. He was a steward of the gospel, the, 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 the gospel call that God put upon him, that Christ gave him under the road to Damascus. He stewarded that well. And he says, he says elsewhere, that, that it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. Do you see faithfulness in Paul as you work through the book of Acts? Don't we? An incredible sort of, of, of faithfulness. He just goes from one place to another. He gets beaten. He gets imprisoned. He gets stoned. He gets back up. He's like the Energizer Bunny. And just in that sort of faithful, habitual way, he moves from one place to another. Can you imagine being as hated and as oppressed and as injured so many times as Paul and yet always getting back up, dusting himself off and going and doing it again? How many of you have ever done that? Um, just through your own stupidity, like you, you hit a brick wall and then you, you take back a running step and try it again and you hit a brick wall and then you keep doing that over and over? Yeah? Definition of insanity? Describe you? It kind of describes Paul, but in a good way, because Paul was faithful. Now, pastors are tempted, and, and this happens through schooling and through, I don't know, a zeitgeist in the church, you know, a mood that's there. But pastors are tempted to weigh themselves and, and judge themselves by different standards than that. I know when I was in seminary, Matt, I don't know, you, you're a little younger than I am, but one of the things that, that they used to drill into us is, you've got to be a leader. You want to be a pastor today in the church? The church needs leaders. You've got to know what a mission statement is and a vision statement and a purpose statement and, and, and a not either or any of those statement. Uh, if you're going to be a pastor, you've got to be a bold and strong leader for the church or else it's, it's, it's not going to work or whatever else it might be. Or you need a church, to be a successful pastor, you need a church of this size or that size or whatever it may be. We need faithful people. We need faithful preachers. That's, that's first of all. He needs to be scriptural. He needs to be scriptural. You can't read, read this brief story about Berea without coming to that conclusion. Now, Luke doesn't emphasize quite a bit here in terms of what Paul was doing because I think he assumes we already understand that. In a very abbreviated way, he talks about how the Bereans received the word. 
That's it. But what does that mean? It means what it always means for Paul. Paul was there preaching and teaching the gospel of God. He is, he is doing what he did at Thessalonica where, where Luke spelled it out a little more, where he is opening the scripture to them, where he's explaining the scripture to them, where he's persuading them through the scriptures. That's all happening here uh, as well, and Paul is there once more doing that. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Little Rock seeing my uh, granddaughter. Uh, Debbie and I were there. Uh, we took the dog and, uh, and went and hung out with her for a week while her parents were in Europe. You know, it's, it's tough, but uh, anyway, so we were there watching our 16-year-old granddaughter, and we had ex- explicit instructions as to what we were to do, one of which was make sure she goes to church. And we're like, okay, we'll take her to church. Well, I hadn't been to their, their new church, which they'd been going to for, I don't know, six months or something, and uh, it's a mega church. It's a mega church. So you can imagine old Jay. Like, I walked in there trying so hard not to have a chip on my shoulder. Because I'm not really big into megachurches. That's just not my thing. And, and I think there's problems with megachurches. Anyway, all, all that to say, what a pleasant surprise I had when the guy got up and actually started preaching. Because I expected like a 15-minute little talk with, with, with just a few, you know, like illustrations. And he'd be done. And this Bible wouldn't be open. And this guy, to his credit, now it was a topical sermon, but I forgive him for that. Um, but he, he got up and, and there it was just very full of scripture. It wasn't like a Garrison Keeler little talk, you know, it's been a rough week in Lake Wobegon, my hometown. It wasn't one of those, it was, the, it was preaching the gospel, it was preaching the message. You have to have that grace. I'm, I'm using grace as in, that's you, right? We have to have, we have to have preachers who will be scriptural. So if I drop dead tomorrow, or anything, and you're replacing me. This is job number one. You want somebody that's going to be faithful, and you want somebody that's going to be scriptural. If, God forbid, in 30 years, you have to leave Great Bend, um, and it better not be before that, but if at some point, you know, you should ever have to leave Great Bend, and you end up in another community, what's your, what's your first job? Like, to get a house. No, no, it's to find a church. You need to find a church, and you need to know what a good church looks like. You need to have that definition in your mind, and you want to make sure that, that, that the preacher is faithfully delivering the Word of God to you. That's job number one. You need to make sure of that. And if you're a young person and you're thinking about the pastoral ministry, which I know we have several people that are training and, and moving that direction, I want to say to you, do not ever turn back from faithfulness to the Scripture. Whatever else you do, whatever bells and whistles you think are important, this is job Number one. Thirdly, he needs to be loving. He needs to be loving. And I know you're thinking, well, Pastor Jay, you're not loving at all. You don't give anybody hugs. I love you, I love you enough not to give you the monkey pox. That's, uh, that's sort of my, my view on that. <laughs> I'll hug you if you really need one, but you just got to really tell me that ahead of time because I'm not a big hugger and you know that. But Paul, when I looked at this and I was trying to think, okay, what is the passage saying? What, what, what can we derive from this, this interaction of Paul with the Bereans? What I see throughout the book of Acts and here as well is that Paul loved the church. You get to Acts chapter 20, which we'll get there in three chapters, so we're almost there already. You get to Acts chapter 20, you've got the Ephesian elders that meet Paul at Miletus. You remember the story? And he urges them, he encourages and exhorts them that they need to love the church. They need to love the flock. 
He says, this is the flock for which Christ shed his blood. That's how you, you are to love them because there's going to be wolves that come in, wolves that will, that will teach twisted things and you need to protect them. That's how we see love and you've seen it all the way along. Think back to Philippi. Remember what I said then when, we, when Paul stands up to the magistrates after they've let him go and, the, and he's supposed to go quietly? And I ask you then, I said, why do you think he stayed and made the point of saying, look, you beat us though we're Roman citizens and, and that's a no-no. You, know, you should not have done that. Well, he was putting the fear of God in them and he was giving the church a window of time in which the church was going to be unmolested at least for the foreseeable future because of how they'd treated Paul. And then he gets to Thessalonica, and, and the same kind of thing. He's concerned for the church. The church is being oppressed. You've got this whole thing, and people have had to put money on the line, Jason and the other brothers. And so Paul ends up leaving quietly. And the same thing again here in Berea. It, things get heated up. It becomes difficult to preach the gospel because of all the people shouting. Paul sort of slips out quietly. But when he does, what does he do? He leaves Silas and Timothy. Paul didn't usually travel alone, but he left them there. Why? Because he loved the church. Because he loved the people of God. Paul loved the churches he established. His heart was devoted to them, to their growth, to their maturity. How do you know a good shepherd from a not-so-good shepherd, according to Jesus? Do you remember that one? Because he says, you know, there's a good shepherd and there's a hireling. And they're both doing the exact same job, right? Can you tell that if you drive by today a, a herd of sheep and there's a shepherd out there, which would be kind of weird in Kansas because that's not how it's done, but if you see a shepherd out there, is that the owner or is that a hireling? Like, I don't know. Unless he's wearing a name tag, I don't know the answer to that. Jesus said, well, here's how you know. When the wolves come, the hireling goes, you don't pay me enough for that. And he leaves. But the good shepherd lays down his life for the flock. So it, you, you need a preacher who loves the flock in that way. Finally, still under this point, he needs to be willing to suffer. He needs to be willing to suffer. Consider all that Paul was willing to suffer for the sake of the church. And we've talked about this before. But Paul, Paul I think there's a couple places actually where Paul lists some of his sufferings. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He talks about endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. The list goes on. There's shipwreck. And, and then all of his, his just deep concern for the churches that he carried around like a burden for them everywhere he went. Everywhere Paul went, he was hounded. He was hated, and he was hounded, and he was driven out from place to place. He suffers beating and stoning and humiliation everywhere. And Berea is no exception to that. Is it any wonder that Jesus, when he called Paul and he sent Ananias to lay hands on Paul to receive his sight, and he says to Ananias, he says, I will show him all that he must suffer for my name's sake. Here's the question, though. Is that meant to be part of pastoral ministry? Does that transfer over? Is that just a normal part that, that we should expect? And I would say, and this may surprise you, my answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. And I wish they taught me that in seminary. <laughs> yeah, I think seminaries do a disservice because I think a lot of times the, in your classes, they're telling you how to avoid suffering. Well, like if you do this right... 
You get into church, if you do this right, you'll be okay. All right? uh, you can diminish this problem if you, you know, if you meet it head on and you nip it in the bud and whatever else, the Barney Fife version of how you treat, you know, handle churches. But you know what? The truth of the matter is you cannot avoid suffering in the ministry. Let me give you some scriptural reasons for that. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, remember, real quickly, Paul left Timothy at Ephesus. This is later on, not now, but later on he leaves him at Ephesus, essentially to pastor the church there. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 2.3, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share. In suffering as a good so, and then later, as he's as he's still going on, just a few verses later, he says to him, and he's giving his own example. He says, "Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? They're the elect chosen people of God in the various congregations that Paul has has ministered to." He says, "I endure everything." In other words, endure. I suffer. I suffer whatever I need to suffer. I do any, anything and everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I don't think that, that means that pastors have to be like seeking suffering. I mean, if you, if you hear me saying that, I'm not. I'm, I don't love suffering. I mean, I'm not like... <laughs> weirdo. I'm not a masochist. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I don't go out and open my car door every once in a while if I'm a little low on my suffering quotient and just slam my thumb in it real hard just to back to the suffering again. It's not like that, is it? I just will say this to you. If, if a preacher is doing what Paul did and holding the line and being scriptural, then he will suffer. It, it, it's normal. If we try to avoid suffering... Then, then we short-circuit a very important process that God wants to do in our lives by which Christ is glorified and in which we share in the fellowship of his suffering. There's something sweet and good and right for the pastor, for any Christian, when we can say that we are sharing in the suffering, in that fellowship of the suffering of Christ. A man by the name of uh, a pastor, by the name of William Still, uh, says this. I, I didn't get it from William Still. I got it from this, this book that uh, we got at conference, Theology for Ministries. It's just been a really good book that I've been reading from. And here's the quote. He says, he's talking, and he's talking about pastors coming into that, that, that suffering in ministry and the importance of dying to, to yourself as in the pastorate. He says, from the moment that you stand there dead in Christ. And I think he's talking about the pastor who's gone through suffering and he's got nothing left in himself. And no, and no illusions of grandeur or anything left, it, but, it's, but it's just death and suffering, if you will, for Christ. And, and, he's still, and he's standing there still. He says, from the moment that you stand there dead in Christ and dead to everything you are and have and ever shall be and have every breath and breath and, and you breathe thereafter, every thought you think, every word you say and deed you do must be done over the top of your own corpse. Or reaching over it in your preaching to others, then, then it can only be Jesus that comes over and no one else. I don't know if you if you got that because that's a long quote, but he's he's more or less saying it's vital for pastors to grow and to suffer. Because eventually in that suffering they realize it's not about themselves. It's not about them, their reputation, their accomplishments, their, their glory. It's about Jesus. And at that point, when they get to that point of suffering, then they're preaching over their own dead body. And that's the only time when, it's, when, the, when the message is really going to come across 
and reach people's hearts for Christ. I love that. I love that. Anyway, okay. A good church, though, also needs a certain kind of people. Ooh, that's going to get real. What made the Bereans particularly special? Well, they were called noble. What made them noble? Well, it was that whole eagerness thing again. It was, it was that eagerness concerning the gospel and concerning the word. So first of all, they need to be eager to hear the gospel. They need to be eager to hear the gospel. Now, we are a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church. You know that. I think some people misunderstand, though, when we say that, as if to think that all we ever do on a Sunday morning is get up here and tell the basic rudimentary essence of the gospel, which is that Christ died for sinners, he was buried, he rose the third day, and he ascended to, to heaven in glory, and that he did this for those who would believe and trust in him. That's the essence and the core of the gospel. But a gospel-believing church, a gospel-centered church, is more than that. It is, it is a church that... that well, the, where the whole scripture is connected in and through the gospel. So if we're preaching Old Testament and we're preaching the commandments of God, for instance, you say, well, that's different than the gospel. Is it? Is it really? Is it different than the gospel? Because let me tell you for a moment, when we look at the commands of God, it shows us who God is, how glorious and good and holy he is, and, and the desire that we might please and, and, and honor him and obey him comes through. But then we realize how, how we fall short of that, and we think, how, how will I do it when I can't keep all of these commandments? And then we hear of one who came and gloriously fulfilled that, living out that righteousness, fully obedient to all of those commands, who now shares his righteousness with us, imputes that righteousness to us for our justification, but who also by the Holy Spirit is at work in us to take the law of God and, and, and bring it to our hearts, whereby from the heart we begin to obey God. So the whole scripture connects to the gospel, doesn't it? It all goes back to that. A good, noble, healthy church is made up of men and women, hear me, who have an appetite for that. Men and women who have an appetite for the gospel. They're coming. They're wanting to hear the old story, but they're also wanting it to be put into context. What does that mean? What does that mean when I'm in Genesis? What does that mean when I'm in Revelation? What does that mean when I'm at work, when I'm in the school, wherever I am? How does the gospel speak life to me? That's the eagerness that, that you want. You, know, you can call something a church, and it's maybe not a church. You can call something preaching, and it may not be preaching. Some churches have gone toward the idea that what we really need to do, you know, because the world has become so just, just so strangely worldly. Isn't it weird when the world becomes worldly? How many are always shocked that the world gets more worldly? And then the church goes, you know what we really need to do is we need, this will fool them, we'll become more worldly. Yeah. Yeah, we'll make our worship service feel really, really worldly. So they'll just be out swimming in the lukewarm world, and they'll walk into the church, and they'll be like a one-degree difference. And they just go, oh, this feels good. No, <laughs> you know, that's, not, that, that's not what a church is. A church is going to proclaim the gospel, whether men are eager to hear it or whether they're closed and hardened to it, because it is only the gospel that actually changes lives. And, 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 and the church needs people that are not just willing to suffer the, the, the preaching they have to sit through on Sunday morning, but, but people who are eager, eager to hear the gospel. They need to examine the scripture. And I'm not, this is probably the most important point, and I'm giving it the least amount of space. 
but um, yeah, partly because of time here. But when you look at it, how could you miss this? How could you miss the fact that, that what defines nobility is just the willingness and the heart to say, show me in the scripture. Let's compare. Tell me where you're getting this, Paul. I want to see it. Okay, the Davidic, the Davidic kingship. Yes, I get that. I get the branch that's going to be raised up uh, for David. And, and, so, and, he, and he can take them through and they can look at the scripture. It's that heart that defined their nobility. Now, we already saw that Paul was competent to, to lay that word out, but... It's one thing to have a preacher laying the word out, but it's another thing altogether to say, are the people receiving that? Because you can have the one and not have the other, can't you? For it to work. I mean, it could, it, the, the, the word of God falls on different kinds of soils. If we want to be a good church, we have to be a people who hunger for the word of God. If you want a good church and you're sitting back judging this or that church, make sure at least... You're a person who genuinely loves the Word of God and, and loves the Scriptures and wants it opened. Because that's the, only, that's the place where, where you're going to impact it. And then this final point is another place where you really can just dive in. And that is they need to be partners with the leaders. They need to be partners with the leaders. One of the things I really love about this passage and if you're not careful, you, kind of, you can kind of miss it because it just seems like one of those kind of transitional things, but it's, I don't think it really is. When you hear that the people in Berea quickly moved Paul out of there and got him to the sea and eventually to Athens, I know what it sounds like. It sounds like Paul was a puppy that had come into their home and then wet on the carpet. And they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. He's causing nothing but havoc. Throw him in the car, drive him out into the country. Not just the country. Let's go about four counties away so that there's no way this guy can come back here and, and ruin our house. It sounds like that at first. That's not what's happening there at all. They love the gospel. They love what Paul has done. They have come to believe in Jesus Christ, and they are committed to that. And they're like, Paul... Okay, it's time for you to go. We'll be okay for now. He says, I'm going to leave Silas and Timothy. And they're like, that's great. We want you to keep ministering. We want to be part of that. We want to make sure that you make it to Athens. Some of us have been there before. We know the way. We know it's dangerous. We're going to take you there. We're not going to let you travel alone. We're going to make sure you get there so that you can continue to proclaim the word of God. And they go. They, they get him there. There's something very beautiful about that fact. Satisfying experience of the church and the Christian life is, is not one where the pastor or the leaders are doing all the work. And I don't say that selfishly, like, oh, I just want to spare myself a lot of work so that you guys will you know, pick up the slack. I'm not saying that. And I know a lot of you are doing an awful lot. I'm just, I'm just preaching to you here what, what I think is in the text, and that is that, the, that real satisfaction in a good church is when those people come alongside of the leaders and go, that's right. We're with you guys. We'll, we'll, we'll put skin in the game. We'll put time. We'll put effort. We'll risk. We'll get you to Athens. We'll get you where you need to go. We'll send missionaries. We'll, we'll give of, uh, of, our, of our substance for the, for the support of the church or however it might be. But, but you're invested in partnering in the gospel. I think we need to know what a good church is. The pastor's conference that Scott and I attended recently uh, which we've already referenced once today. We were, uh, we were in the middle of one of these uh, 
these sessions, there was always a speaker, then a panel, then another speaker, and then wash, rinse, and repeat. We did this for several days. But um, during this one panel break, uh, they, they were talking about missions, and they had a number of people on the panel, which is, I guess, how a panel usually works. And uh, one of the guys was a pastor from India. And he's up there, and they've had people submit questions. So they say to this Indian pastor, they say, hey, here's a question. What would you, as a pastor in India, like to see in church planting missionaries who come from the States? What would you really like to see them be about? And this guy was funny. Every time, I mean, he was, he was dry. He didn't, never cracked a smile, but the things he said would get laughter and applause. But he said, you know what I would really like to see? He said, I would like to see men who have lived in the church come to know what a church actually looks like before they come and plant a church in India. And I just, you know, everybody's applauding and everything. It's like, yes, yes, you get people. And, and I, this is not a knock on, on Bible colleges or seminaries or anything of the like. But you know what? Sometimes we're very, very shallow in our depth of understanding of what a biblical church is like. And before we can go taking that to India, we need to know what that looks like here in, in the good old U.S. of A., we need to experience that. If you don't know Christ today, um, I just want to say this about what we're trying to accomplish at this church. And it's nothing, uh, you know, I saw earlier about uh, back in seminary, how you had to have a vision and leadership skills and all that. And I don't really think I've got a, a particularly deep set of those skills. Um, it's just very ordinary what we're trying to accomplish here at Grace. Is we're trying to be a biblical church. And I, I hope this won't offend you. I hope you'll find it refreshing but we are not trying to make grace feel like the world that you just stepped out of. We don't want you to walk from lukewarm uh, 98 degree weather into a 97 degree church and, and barely notice that there's a difference. We want you to walk in here and under the preaching of the word of God and in the worship of God, we want you to feel the temperature like dropped about you know, 20. We want it to be brisk. We want you to go, what just happened? Why are these, why are these people scaring me? Why are they, you know, why, what are they talking about? Because the truth of the matter is there is a big difference between the world and what the church is called to do. We are called to proclaim a timeless, eternal, saving gospel of, of Jesus Christ. To preach it to you, to preach it to ourselves. We need to hear it again and again and again. You need to hear it because you need to be saved. You need to, to come to a knowledge of, of the truth in Jesus Christ and repent and believe in him. And if that happens, not only will you have eternal life, but you will need a good church. We're, trying to, we're seeking to be that. If, if it's not grace, then at least we've given you some ideas about what a good church ought to look like. But you need to be in a good church, you need to get baptized. You need to become part of that church. You need to sit under the preaching of the word. If there's something on this you, you, you don't understand, you'd like to talk to someone, I'm more than willing, more than happy to talk to you. You've seen a couple other people get up here today. You get Casey and Peyton. You got the elders in the church. You got any one of a number of people, practically anybody in the pew here, right? Am I right? Congregation, you've all partnered with the gospel. You're ready to explain it, aren't you? But if you have questions, talk to someone. Be a Berean. Be of noble character and seek 
the scriptures, till you, till you know that you know Christ. Let's pray. Father, it, it is easy to look at the Bereans and feel inspired by, by that nobility that, that we see there. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the church there and, and their excitement and their eagerness. And we just want to pray, Lord, that, that we would be that kind of a church, that we would be that kind of a people and, and those kinds of preachers, Lord, so, so that in all things the focus might not be upon ourselves but upon Christ, that, that everything we do would sort of be preached and lived over our dead bodies so that all the glory and all the life might be demonstrated and seen in Jesus Christ and in Him and Him alone. And I pray, Lord, that if someone needs you today, they would see Christ for all His worth, for His perfect life, His perfect sinless life, lived for sinners and, and dying for sinners and risen for sinners, that in Him they might repent and believe and have life in His name. We ask it in His name. Amen.